This is Vandana Shiva and you're listening to the Enviro show on Valley Free Radio WXOJLP 103.3 FM Northampton streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org Remember listen to your mother The Enviro show thanks River Valley Co-op Northampton's locally grown food co-op located at 330 North King Street and at 228 Northampton Street in East Hampton the co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods from produce and cheese to fresh meats and locally baked goods. Everyone is welcome. Open 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily. Enviro Show thanks River Valley Co-op for their support. Do you find yourself longing for the apocalypse? I did. I was looking for a reason to live. Hi. Are you feeling tired? Irritable, stressed out, well, you might consider nature. From the people that brought you getting outside comes prescription strength nature, a non-harmful medication shown to relieve the crippling symptoms of modern life. Nature's recommended for humans of all ages, and it's great for pets, too. Nature can reduce cynicism, meaninglessness, anal retentiveness, and murderous rage. In clinical studies, nature is proven to decrease work-induced catatonia. Caution. Nature may cause you to slow down, quit your job, or seriously consider what the f*** you're doing with your life. If you are overly cynical, jaded, or emotionally numb, you may need to increase your dose of nature. Do you have trouble being even mildly uncomfortable? Nature may not be right for you. Side effects may include spontaneous euphoria, taking yourself less seriously, and being in a good mood for no apparent reason. So ask your doctor if nature is right for you. Now, literally from across the valley and around the world, it's the Enviro Show on WXOJLP 103.3 FM, Valley Free Radio, Northampton. Greetings, Earthlings. It's the Forest as Climate Solutions of Iro Show Part 2, as we promised the last time. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dio, and I'm not in the studio with... I am Glenn Ayers. Hey, Glenn. It's time for Part 2 of our coverage of the report of the Climate Forestry Committee, Recommendations for Climate-Oriented Forest Management Guidelines from the Gov and Company... This time, with excerpts from three of the scientists 
on that committee who participated in a Trees as a Public Good event recently. They are Richard Birdsey, Senior Scientist, Woodwell Climate Research Center, David Foster, former Harvard Forest Director and Professor, Harvard University, and William Muma, Professor Emeritus at the International Environmental Policy Fletcher School, Tufts University, and the Distinguished Visiting Scientist also at the Woodwell Climate Research Center. So they'll be responding to questions from Trees PG and others. As always, we will also present you with this week's Fool on the Hill and those whose brains are small, along with a reminder that it's a climate crisis to bid and more. But first, it's time for... Revenge of the Critters. Dogs take revenge. Dogs. We don't usually have, you know, domesticated animals. Well, these, I think, were feral dogs. They take their revenge on a man who kicked a canine. Get ready for this. This is in China. A driver in China apparently paid the price for kicking a dog after a pack of canine attacked his car. The man said he drove into the car park in the city of Chongqing, Southwest China to find a dog was occupying his usual spot one evening. He then decided to kick the sandy-colored stray dog out of the way. When the man returned to his car the next morning, he discovered that it had been damaged by a slew of what appeared to be bite marks. Okay, there's a video element to that one. Go to the blog, click on the link. Revenge of the Critters. Hey, maybe the dogs will catch on like the killer whales have been. (laughs) Yeah, why bite metal when you can bite humans? Yeah. Let's move on. Have a fool on a hill? And nobody seems to like him. The fool on the hill. Okay, this week's fool on a hill is Texas extremist Republican Tommy Tuberville. He of the blocking military promotion schemes. Here's a conversation between him and Defense Secretary Austin in the New York Post. Quote, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin became visibly frustrated Tuesday as Republicans, oh, what we call Republicans, on the Senate Armed Services Committee criticized him for leftist Pentagon policies and programs, including a... 2021 stand down to address extremism in the ranks. Quote, as one of your first acts, Mr. Secretary, you put our military, every single member, active duty and reserve, to a mandatory training to root out extremists. Close quote. Extremists. Senator Tommy Tuberville said during a hearing on the Defense Department's proposed budget for the fiscal year 2024. And he went on to say, that sent a message that our military is filled with extremists. Our military is one of the most diverse organizations in the world, Tuberville added. It's full of patriots, close quote. Now, defending the stand down, Austin said, quote, we've always had regulations against extremist behavior, close quote. Sorry, Tommy, it is what it is. 
What a fool that guy is. Oof. Oh, well. Meanwhile, over with the climate crisis. Remember our reports on the COP28 clown show? How about that? Presided over by some oil chic who seems not to really know it's the climate crisis, stupid. Well, guess who's supposed to head the next show? COP29. Another veteran of the oil and gas industry, Mukhtar Babiev, Azerbaijan's ecology and natural resources minister, has been appointed. He's going to be the president in waiting for COP29. For his entry into politics, however, in the autocratic country in Western Asia, once the Soviet Republic, Babiev spent 26 years working for the state oil company of the Azerbaijan Republic. Surprise! Glenn, they keep doing these things. What's going on with these people? Yeah, well, it makes sense for him to be working for the state oil company of Azerbaijan and then, of course, become the ecology and natural resources minister. That's the perfect evolution, right? Uh, I don't know. I I thought climate talks should like improve over time. No? Am I being being naive? Well, it's been 28 years of failure, so Mm -hmm. they're keeping with what they're good at. There it is. Oh, and check out this story from Grist. Climate change means communities along the Mississippi River are experiencing longer and higher floods in springtime, flash flooding from heavy rains, as well as prolonged droughts. Well, much of this has to do with working against nature. If you click on the link and and read the piece, not working with nature. And finally, this. In a scorching year, scientists wonder if climate change is speeding up. They're wondering this. So really? Okay. It really is a wonder. It's kind of like wonder bread. You wonder if it's bread. Oh, anyway. Oh, when their their brains were small. How about this? They were big, dumb, and slow. They couldn't go with the flow. Their brains were small and they died. And, no surprise here, quote, Davos puts climate on the back burner. That seems like a perfect candidate for their brains were small and they died. But they didn't yet. Why stop there? Another one, quote, the rich are the ones burning the planet, close quote. (laughs) So, This is where we read, research repeatedly shows that expanding inequality is intimately tied up with the destruction of the planet. We can't save the world without taking on the rich. Close quote. Okay, game on for that one. I'm thinking, of course, of of Hanscom, the the proposal to expand Hanscom uh, Airfield and uh, Concord. That, that is a good example of the super rich, privileged people needing to fly from one little place to another and the government facilitating that in spite of the mandate that everyone else is under to drastically reduce 
their greenhouse gas emissions by 85, 90%. And yet the super rich get to double, triple, quadruple theirs, no questions asked. Exactly. Oh, let's take a quick trip to the Marosho echo chamber here. Remember that new fright gas pipeline that evil source, oh, I'm sorry, Eversource wants to ram through Springfield and Longmeadow? Guess what? It's still a thing. Check out the blog. Click on a great video about this issue. It's in Show without the W.blogspot.com. And also we have, right along with it, a petition for the Gov, which uh, the deadline for signing petition is soon, beginning of February. Check that out. Hey, Glenn, how about a quote of the week? Here's our environmental quote of the week from some of the climate scientists quoted above. Quote, allowing mature and old growth forests to continue growing will remove from the air and store the largest amount of atmospheric carbon in the critical decades ahead. The sooner logging of these forests ceases, the more climate protection they can provide. Close quote. Go to the blog, click on that link. I think, Glenn, that brings us to our the work you've been doing for the past few days and getting the excerpts from those quotes. Yeah, I'm editing out that presentation, you know, just to include kind of the introductory statements from the three scientists who served on that committee of so-called experts. Uh, these three certainly are experts. I questioned whether some of the other ones were experts who were interested in really doing what the mandate was for that committee, which was to look at the management of forests in light of the climate emergency. And they, they talk about that quite a bit, how that wasn't really the focus. There were quite a few people on that committee who seemed to be focused on timber extraction and economic exploitation of our forests, especially state-owned forests. And I think it's a very telling interview. There were a few key points that were made, I think, and that really comes down to this basic policy or philosophical difference on the purpose of forests and the critical role that they play in addressing the climate emergency and reaching so-called net zero by 2050. And in order to meet that goal, which is a legally mandated goal by laws passed by the state legislature, in order to meet that goal, we have to start now. We can't wait until 2050. We got to start now and we need to start protecting forests. So let's listen to the interview. I think You'll be amazed if you've been listening <clears throat> to this show in the past. These scientists from the committee are saying pretty much the same things that we have been saying on this show, I'm going to say for decades almost, for, for more than the past 10 years, and the same comments that we have been constantly making to the state agencies who are pretty much in charge of chopping down our publicly owned forests 
mm-hmm. for private profit for their buddies. And so you'll hear the same themes, the same points that we've been making on this show for year after year after year that we've been making at hearings before the DCR, the Stewardship Council, and the hearings that they held about this so-called Climate Forest Initiative. But you're hearing it from the scientists who are on this committee, and we're talking about the report that was released, and there's a link to that in the blog. And what they basically say is that we have a lot of work to do, and we're going to need we're going to need everyone's help to stop the madness, stop the exploitation, stop the destruction, especially of our publicly owned forests in the Commonwealth, and start treating the climate emergency as if it's a real thing. So exactly. let's listen to that interview, and maybe we'll have some more to say at the end. Thank you for coming to the Trees as a Public Good Network. I'm Melissa Brown. I'm one of the steering committee members. Today we have a special session to discuss the Climate Forestry Committee report with three of the committee members. As part of the Forests as Climate Solutions Initiative, the Healy administration convened a 12-person committee to inform the development of climate-oriented management guidelines to increase carbon storage and resilience to climate change. So let me start by introducing the scientists. First, Dr. Rich Birdsey is a specialist in forest inventories who has pioneered development of methods to estimate carbon budgets for forest lands from forest inventory data. He retired as a distinguished scientist from the U.S. Forest Service and is currently a senior scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center. He developed the first greenhouse gas inventory of U.S. forests, which became the model for the annual inventory of forests produced by the Forest Service and the EPA. He was a lead author of two special reports for the IPCC that were awarded the Nobel Prize in 2007. His current research involves analysis of the potential for forests to sequester carbon as they grow older and contain large trees, given increasing threats from logging and natural disturbances. Another of our scientist guests, Dr. David Foster, is an ecologist and the director emeritus of the Harvard Forest, Harvard University's 4,000-acre ecological laboratory. His research focuses on interpreting landscape dynamics from climate change, human activity, and other factors, and applying these results to conservation. In 2005, he worked with colleagues to develop Wildlands and Woodlands, a vision for the New England landscape, an ambitious initiative for forest and farmland conservation integrated with community development. He is the author of Forest in Time, Ecosystem Structure and Function as a Consequence of a Thousand Years of Change, as well as other books. And our third scientist guest is Dr. Bill Muma. He is Professor Emeritus of International and Environmental Policy at the Fletcher School, Tufts University. He is a distinguished visiting scientist at Woodwell Climate Research Center. 
In 2019, he was elected a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and he was a lead author of five IPCC reports between 1995 and 2011, including the 2007 report that shared the Nobel Prize. He is currently identifying natural climate solutions to restore the functional role of terrestrial ecosystems in the global climate system, achieve ecological integrity and biodiversity in degraded ecosystems, and accumulate additional atmospheric carbon out of the atmosphere in forests, wetlands, and soils. In 2022, he introduced the concept of proforestation to let forests grow without harvest to achieve their potential for carbon accumulation and biodiversity. We asked the scientists to please address the controversies referenced in the committee's report. In particular, we wanted to know why the committee was not able to come to science-based agreement. So let's start with Dr. Birdsey. Thanks, and I'm pleased to be here to chat for a little while with you all uh, this evening. Actually, I thought the committee agreed quite well with the basic science. Uh, for example, no one really disagreed that deforestation was a problem and should be eliminated. It obviously emits a lot of carbon in a very short period of time, and it's a permanent loss of capacity to sequester more carbon. And also, there was little disagreement that old forests and larger trees store the largest amount of carbon, and that allowing young forests to grow without harvest would continue to accumulate carbon for decades the centuries. And the committee also strongly agreed that ecological disturbances are an important and necessary aspect of uh, forest ecosystems as they increase structural and compositional complexity. But there was a real disconnect, I think, between the agreement about the science and then what would be the best ways to manage forests for resilience and climate mitigation. And this largely reflected uh, the diverse backgrounds of the committee members. The members, broadly speaking, fell into two groups, supporting either active management or passive management, and that roughly aligned with those who were involved in some manner with producing timber, in other words, using forests for economic gain, and then those involved more with protection of forests. But research clearly indicates that protecting forests and allowing them to grow old keeps more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere than active management for the purpose of increasing the area of younger forests. And I think the other disconnect here is that some members were more concerned about other goals for forest management besides climate change, which was the charge to the group. For example, those involved with timber production or interested in habitat for a specific species were in one camp, and then others more focused on the main goal of the committee involving carbon and climate change. I just wanted to read one quote from the executive summary, which said, disturbing the forests of Massachusetts as little as possible and allowing to force to grow and age through passive management is generally the best approach for maximizing carbon, ecological integrity, and soil health. However, Massachusetts must manage forests for multiple purposes and benefits simultaneously. And so I think that was where the disconnect came in. Thanks a lot. Dr. Foster? Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me and inviting us to talk with this group. I think this is a 
an important report in many ways. I think the activity that was undertaken and the basic initiative by the Healy administration and by EEA to develop this report as part of the interest in advancing natural solutions to climate change is incredibly important. I strongly second Rich's interpretation. I thought that the group that was assembled was really well-versed broadly in the science and that the science that we presented and discussed was largely agreed on. As is oftentimes true, it's the question of what do you do with that science? And it's at that point that there was divergence. Part of it came from different backgrounds. Part of it came from the fact that people have different value systems. There were many people who felt that it's important to produce resources in our own backyard where we can take responsibility for it. There were others that felt that perhaps Massachusetts' best use of its forests was to protect them intact and to manage them passively, and we should obtain our resources from other parts of the country or maybe even other parts of New England. So I think the question itself is a little bit off base because the controversies and the disagreements largely arose over how to apply that science. The one place that is really striking to me where I think the science is either less clear or invites a lot of disagreement or different perspectives is in this whole question of forest health, forest integrity, forest resistance, and resilience. Those are terms that are oftentimes used, but are but generally not well-defined. And they raise a lot of issues for which there is not adequate science, but there's an awful lot of history and a lot of science that comes out of the pre-European landscape of New England and the recent history of New England that we can apply to this. And it's in that area that actually I found the biggest point of disagreement, because if one views the majority of our forests as being in poor health or unable to adapt to future climate change or to the natural disturbances and human-mediated disturbances that are affecting the landscape, then of course one wants to go out and manage most of the landscape. I actually fall into a different camp where I believe that our forests are quite resilient. And in most cases, when it comes down to forest health and resilience, I would rather leave our forests to develop naturally and let nature rather than people decide their fate. Dr. Muma, if you will please go ahead. Thank you. Both of my preceding speakers summarized a lot of things very effectively. It was clear early on that we were not going to get everyone to agree on some compromised language. And I think it sort of evolved over time that we decided, well, let's let the experts who know how to manage forests for economic production make their case. Let's let those who are concerned about the integrity of, of our forests and uh, their capacity and their resilience and so forth make their case. So it makes it perhaps confusing to an outside reader, but we have the clear positions of these people with different uh, types of expertise about forests. And I think it's important to remember that since European settlement over 400 years ago, forests were either considered a barrier to agriculture and urban development, 
or they were seen as a resource for fiber and fuel. And that persisted for 300 years, a little over 100 years ago, when the rapacious cutting, the clearing of 80% of New England, was seen as not sustainable, and it wasn't called that at the time. And so at this point, Massachusetts is locked into laws that were passed back in the 1920s. And the perception was, oh, we can do a whole lot better than just decimating the forest. We can make them productive into the indefinite future for our economic benefit. And it's only recently that we've begun to realize that forests are actually essential components of the Earth's operating system. Globally, they have this amazing capacity that they prevent the increase in carbon dioxide every year in the world from increasing by 30%. In other words, there's 30% less increase in the atmosphere every year from our emissions than there would be if forests weren't here. On the other hand, we now know that forest harvests are the major source of emissions from forest disturbance. Wildfires make great TV video. The only study that's really been done about the U.S. has found that harvesting produced about five times as much carbon dioxide as all other disturbances combined. So those of us who were in the camp of we really need to deal with climate change really felt that we needed to make that the primary goal rather than the economic argument for providing these materials. And the other thing is that in the middle of all this, a research paper by Richard Birdsey came out showing that our forests in this region are middle-aged and if allowed to keep growing, would accumulate about twice as much carbon as they currently hold. So we have a lot of evidence that if we really want to address climate change, we're going to have to change our laws that currently encourage more harvesting than is probably good for the planet. Thank you. Those are very helpful opening statements. So, Dr. Foster, how do you think that the report's recommendations should be implemented to best achieve the state's climate goals? So one of the really positive aspects of this whole process and of the report was that EEA was very open and welcoming input to all of the agencies, all of the state agencies. They also made it very clear that they were very hopeful that they would be able to do as much as possible to share this report with private landowners, and I would hope also municipal landowners, such that the guidelines from the report could be advanced broadly across the state. So I think that is actually a key element. We need to advance and use this report as broadly as possible. I think some of the elements that came up that are really important that Rich underscored is that there is a very strong interest in increasing reserves, doing that across public land and doing it in concert with private landowners and nonprofit organizations. And there's mention of goals, 10% of the landscape of the state, which is actually aligned with the goal of wildlands and woodlands is one of the things that could be advanced. There also is incredible acceptance of natural disturbance processes and acceptance of a kind of passive management approach to disturbances by insects and other kinds of diseases and other kinds of, of related disturbances. Clearly, the report asks for each of the agencies and calls out specifically Fish and Wildlife and DCR Watershed to look very hard at the rationale for its active management. And 
The one thing that I think is actually missing from the report is a question of how will we actually get our wood resources in Massachusetts? And what is the obligation of the state and private landowners? And we'll probably come back and talk about that more. But I think that one of the really important things for members of this group to look at is if we don't want those resources to come from state lands, if we want them to come either from private lands or lands outside of the state, what are we going to do as active citizens in Massachusetts to make sure that those are obtained in as environmentally sound a fashion as possible? Thank you. Good question. Dr. Muma. Well, if we look at the most beneficial way to increase the removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it in forests, it is that we cannot manage all forests the same way. The problem we have in the United States is that uh, fewer than about 5% of the, of the land in the lower 48 states are over 100 years old. And these are filled with species that live 200, 300 years. And that's true in Massachusetts as well. And the old growth forests store disproportionately large amounts of carbon. So we need to set aside enough forests that are allowed to continue growing to actually meet the climate goal. If we keep them all at whatever it is, 70 years average age, we'll never get there. So we need to have some that the average age will be 150 years and others that are on a shorter rotation for production. I personally think that the goal of 10% is too low. I don't think the planet can function if we only do 10%. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2022 said maintaining the resilience of biodiversity and ecosystem services at a global scale depends on effective and equitable conservation of approximately 30 to 50 percent of Earth's land, freshwater and ocean areas, including currently near natural ecosystems. We have a number of currently near natural ecosystems, so I'd like to see a much higher percentage of those protected. And I do think that the main thing that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to change some of the laws that require the ongoing uh, management for production. And in those areas like water resources and uh, fisheries and wildlife, we learned that there's really no scientific reason for harvesting on those lands. And so that would be a place where we could get some big gains. Dr. Bertzi? So it was very helpful to hear about state agencies and what they're doing and their approach. But I think they really uh, need to refocus their management mandates to better reflect the priorities of the governor's office and the Global Warming Solutions Act, both of which mention and highlight the role of the land in achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions for the state of Massachusetts. And there's many recommendations in the report about ways to do this. For example, we already talked about active management, typically reducing carbon stocks over the short term. That's a loss that is going to go against reducing emissions. And so we really need to think about those type of projects. And agencies really need to be very open and transparent about their objectives and what they're doing on the land. And then, as David mentioned, I think there's a strong role here for private lands, even though our work wasn't focused on private lands, but it would be really helpful if there were a funded program to incentivize private landowners to protect mature forests. And if they're managing for timber to adopt 
best practices for increasing carbon stocks by employing climate smart silvicultural practices. So I really think there's a role for private lands and that is something that should be emphasized more than is now showing in the report. So let me go on to the next prepared question. Do you think that the process that the report lays out for implementing its recommendations into agencies, policies, protocols, procedures, and standards, do you think that process will actually achieve the climate goals? Dr. Muma? That's a very, very important question. And we, we will certainly not meet climate goals. And by, by the way, I, I, let me just say at the outset, I think that the net zero carbon by 2050 sounded bold when it was put out. I think it's not nearly enough. If we get to net zero tomorrow, we are living in a climate which is becoming intolerable already. If we wait until 2050, it will be more intolerable. So I think we cannot rest on the false promise that, oh, some 25 years from now or so, we're going to be carbon neutral. I think we have to be at that point much sooner than that and then become carbon negative because that's the only way we're going to have, if we remove more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than we're putting in, that we're going to get back to a, a climate that is really, truly livable. I mean, I think if, we, if it would take till 2050, we will be in a very, very bad situation. As for the uh, proposals here, they certainly get us a long ways towards a promising goal, and they do need to be, I would say, fully implemented, not just partially implemented. But if we did really implement all of this, it would certainly get us on our way. Thank you. Dr. Birdsey? Yeah, Bill makes a great point about the timing here. What happens in the next two or three decades is absolutely crucial. I think the solutions need to reflect the urgency and immediacy of, of actions that need to have a result sooner rather than later. The report contains a lot of recommendations. Some are targeted more toward the objective of dealing with climate change and forest resilience. Others deal with other goals for forest and land management. And I think the agencies really need to focus on those that are going to pertain most closely with the state's climate goals. And that involves sorting through all those recommendations and, and working with those that are most likely to be effective in the short term. The committee recommended reviewing agency missions for consistency with the policy priorities of the state, clearly articulating management goals and directly and explicitly expressing the management intent of projects. In other words, all I'm saying with all these words is that there needs to be little or no disconnect between managing for climate resilience and carbon and the existing mandates for public lands. Thank you. Dr. Foster. Yeah, thanks. I think the short answer is that our committee spent almost no time talking about implementation. We were just told how the report would be implemented, both in terms of public lands and in terms of private lands. That was all shared with us with, I think, the, the full intention that the most would be made out of this report. So I'm not at all trying to second guess the implementation, but that just was not our mandate. Our mandate was developing the report. I do think that if we took the approach that Rich has suggested, it would be superb. That is, the report oftentimes comes down to a, well, you could do this on the one hand or this on the other hand. There is this view and there is that view. If 
at each of those points, the question was asked, what is best for the climate? Then I think the implementation will come out on the right side. And to make it really simple, the way I view it is really when we come down to our forests, we have a need to develop wood resources. And that's a real need. And we've got to do that someplace. And we need to do that extremely well. And we need to do it, as the report argues, with an ecological approach to forestry, which is not happening in most cases on state lands throughout the country or federal lands. We also need to manage our forests for a natural process, which is a passive approach to management. What we don't need is people trying to tweak every forest out there to fit their preconception of what is needed for the future. Because God knows that has been happening for a long time. And all we heard in our report and our discussions of this report is that because of past land use, our forests are not in great health. And so we need to actively manage them. And my question is, if we have gotten things so wrong in the past, why should we be so self-assured that we're going to get things right in the future? So I think if we, if the agencies could just come down to deciding to what extent should they be producing wood using the absolute best forestry possible, and if we could convince private landowners to ask that same question and to do that very effectively, and then at the same time, on all other lands, we try to advance natural climate solutions of passive management and what we call wildland conservation, that we do exactly what Bill Muma has suggested, which is to blow well past the 10% goal and get into a much higher number. And I think there's good reason to be optimistic that we can do that if we take this kind of narrow view towards climate management and wood resources. Thank you. Given that the report strongly recommends increasing the percentage of Massachusetts forests in permanently protected reserves, but we noted that it doesn't actually recommend a particular percentage, and that state-owned forests are about 8% of all forested land in Massachusetts, we want to know how the public can advocate to ensure that the adopted guidelines get us to all public forests being permanently preserved reserves. And let's start with Dr. Birdsey. Yeah, first, I agree with both Bill and David, who uh, mentioned that maybe 10% is is too short a goal. We really need to look, look a bit higher at that, maybe 30 or 50%. Uh, anyways, I have three um, rather specific uh, suggestions for how to move this forward. Uh, first, uh, stop harvesting on public lands, except for safety issues, maybe around campgrounds or something like that. And then there are other uh, uh, conservation easements on private lands, some of which don't really um, result in any protection from, from logging. So I think one needs to take a look at those conservation easements and strengthen them where, where it may be possible. And finally, I think there needs to be some incentive for private landowners to protect forests from logging. As it is, someone will come around, they'll offer to buy some timber and the landowner you know, may be happy to receive that revenue. There's no incentive to not harvest. 
and that's would have a big result, I believe. Uh, I think we'd get a great response from private landowners if there was something that they take home from uh, not harvesting. Thanks. Thank you. Dr. Foster. Thanks. Yeah, so I don't necessarily ascribe to, and I'm actually, it's the first time I've ever heard anyone state that there should be no harvesting, no wood production on all state lands. Even the legislation that's in front of the legislature now doesn't call for that. So I don't necessarily align myself with that. I think that we should look very hard at where do we get our wood. I think there are specific attributes of state lands, their immense size, the fact that they have in the last 40 to 50 years at least, a history of less harvesting than on private lands. There are a number of different attributes that argue that they would make ideal large wildlands. So I think we can look at that very, very closely. I do think that if you talk about advocacy, I would spread it well beyond the state. I think that the engaged public should be asking its local land trust, the statewide conservation organizations, private landowners, what are you going to do with your land? And if you are decided to not manage it, why don't you make that permanent through a commitment of either a forever wild easement or through legislative action or other action that will commit state lands? And these are all a series of recommendations in this recent report that we developed called Wildlands in New England that talk about that. It points out how small the commitment is beyond the state lands currently in Massachusetts to wildlands, and that certainly should be spread. So I wouldn't put all the burden on our state agencies or on public lands in general. Like Rich, I think that there's a real opportunity to incentivize private landowners. And I can tell you, because I own a substantial amount of land in the state of Vermont, that many states do an even worse job than Massachusetts of incentivizing private landowners to create wildland. So there's a huge opportunity in Massachusetts and across New England to advance that, and Massachusetts should lead. Thank you. Dr. Muma. Obviously, decisions about whether there will be or how much there will be of state lands that are harvested is ultimately a political decision. I would hope it would be a political decision that's informed by the realization that we really have to set aside sufficient lands that we can actually maintain the relatively small but not insignificant mature and old growth forests that we already have, but also that uh, we will have these forests become mature and old growth forests in the coming decades until the end of the century. And I mean, if the goal is strictly for climate, Again, if I can quote briefly from the IPCC, furthermore, protection of existing natural forest ecosystems is the highest priority for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's pretty strong and was a surprising conclusion in that report. And safeguarding biodiversity and ecosystems is fundamental to climate resilient development. This is beyond forestry. This is beyond forests. This is just in order for us to have climate resilient development we have to have enough of our forests intact to be able to meet that goal. So I want to say thank you very much to Dr. Birdsey, Dr. Foster, and Dr. Mumoff. Thank you very, very much, much for coming. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay, that was interesting. <laughs> so, Glenn, do we like to sort of do a little wrap up? Yeah, I think there were some key points that were made in that, and one is that the laws that we are operating under here in Massachusetts are almost a hundred years old. I think that's a key point. We've made that point in the past on the show, but that was a key point that was brought up by the scientists as well. And I think another really key point is that we don't have time. We don't have time to fool around. If we don't stop business as usual, and that is stopping the degradation, the continuous planned degradation of our forests, especially our state-owned forests, then there is really no hope that we are going to be able to avoid the absolute worst impacts of the climate chaos. So we need to stop now. We need to give those forests a rest. Let them do their thing. You heard these folks talk about they're all in favor of passive management versus active management. And what we need is policy to change at the state level. And that's where the governor can implement things. The secretary of the executive office of energy and environment, that's where things can change. The policies can change. They can tell the agencies such as DCR and DFW to stop this madness and start treating our forests with the respect and really start treating nature with the reverence that nature deserves and is entitled to. And we're talking about forests that should be treated as if they are sacred. And they are. They're critical to addressing the oncoming freight train of climate chaos. Right. So and, without and that, we're not going to accomplish our goals. Right. And it's not suggestions or recommendations we need. It's enforceable policies. Yes. And I'd say we asked a lot of questions of them about the implementation, and they couldn't really answer that because that wasn't something that they talked about very much in the committee. They just said that this stuff needs to be implemented sooner rather than later, but we need to push to make sure that all of these recommendations get fully implemented, and that is through the regulatory rulemaking process so that if they don't follow the regs, we can enforce that. We can right. sue the bastards, and that's what it's going to take. So we'll see. Stay tuned. There's more to come on this topic, but I think for now, the goal is to get the legislation passed that we've been talking mm -hmm. about extensively on this show, and, and that's H4150. We need to lobby to get that incorporated into any climate omnibus bill that comes out of the legislature this year, and there will be one. And we need to get the municipal reforestation bill passed or incorporated into the environmental bond bill. And we also need to get the, the DFW, the Division of Fisheries and Wildlife bill, which is H904. We need to get that incorporated into the 
climate bill or passed. Those two forestry bills are really critical to set a new direction for Massachusetts publicly owned forests. And we have no time to waste. It's not too late, but we're perched on the precipice. There it is. All right. We have a very full bus stop billboard, which are all filled with all kinds of events and actions. All right. Thursday, January 25th, 7 to 8 p.m. online. How is our Commonwealth battling climate change and what will it mean for you? So Congregation or ETID is pleased to host Massachusetts Climate Chief Melissa Hoffer as she discusses this and other issues facing us in the era of climate change. The event is free and open to the public. After registering, you'll receive a confirmation. Go to the blog and click on the link for that. All right. And then I'm going to go to Tuesday, February 6th through 8th. All those days, you can join Bill McKibben and Third Act and the frontline leaders and national allies in three days of nonviolent civil disobedience at the Department of Energy in Washington, D.C., trying to push Secretary Granholm to stop approving new liquefied natural gas terminals, including the CP2 project in Southwest Louisiana. For more info, go to the blog, click on the links there, and that's enviroshow.blogspot.com. Oh, Glenn, you're going to love this one. Any of the old timers out there, Thursday, February 22nd, 7 p.m. until 10 p.m., Doors open at 6, 50th anniversary celebration of Lovejoy's nuclear war, 50 years of no nukes on the Montague Plains. On February 22nd, 1974, Sam Lovejoy, on a dark and frosty night, brought down the 500-foot meteorological tower erected by Northeast Utilities on the Montague Plains that ignited the national movement against the construction of nuclear reactors and the use of nuclear power. Go to the blog and click on the link to get tickets for that, and we'll see you there. And Friday, February 23rd at 7 p.m., it is the Rights of Nature for the Long River, presented by Hartman Deeds, Mashpee Wampanoag citizen, activist, and artist. They'll give a presentation about the rights of nature and successes that he has been part of, That's going to be at Greenfield Community College Dining Commons in uh, Greenfield. For more info, there's a link on the blog. A lot of in-person events coming up. So finally, Sunday, February 25th, 2 to 3 p.m., the Massachusetts Division of Water Supply Protection will hold an event called Understanding Watershed Forestry Management. This will be a hybrid event with an in-person event held at the Quabbin Reservoir Visitor Center and broadcast virtually on Zoom. Have you ever wondered why trees are harvested on protected watershed land and why recently harvested areas look the way they do? (laughs) You can go and join DCR Quabbin Ware Region Chief Forester Ken Canfield to learn about the benefits of a managed forest and the objectives and conditions that dictate when, where, and how trees are harvested. Go to the blog and click on the link for that one, Glenn. Yeah, you know, that's the perfect way to end this show because obviously Ken Canfield has not read the memo about the climate emergency. In fact, during the question and answer period, the scientists who we, we just 
featured in the middle of this show, they said that there is absolutely no science that justifies watershed logging. None. There is no science for that. And yet, if you go to this presentation by Ken, you're going to hear a lot of timber speak and a lot of fake science. And so this will be very interesting because this is what we're up against. The Division of Fisheries and Wildlife and the Division of Water Supply Protection, which is, you know, just that name is Orwellian to begin with. And the watershed forestry management folks, they are not listening to the science and they're really the problem. And it's going to be incredibly difficult. It's going to take all of us to change the direction of that Titanic because they are full speed ahead right into the iceberg and... It's going to be hard to get these guys with their chainsaws to put down their chainsaws. If you see something, say something. Show up, EnviroShow listeners, on Sunday, February 25, 2 to 3 p.m. Go to the blog, click on the link. That's about it for this show. Well, it was a good one, and I'm going to feel optimistic here that after we have been working on this issue for you know literally decades i feel like our message is out there it is pretty mainstream and we are up against lobbyists and special interests but the public is with us and these scientists made uh, i think a great contribution to this effort by putting these ideas into the public discourse as experts. And the committee, they didn't reach consensus, but that's because they couldn't, because the vested interests will never agree to foregoing the welfare logging program that benefits them and their constituents. But it's time to put down the chainsaws and face the climate reality. Exactly. And we'll be getting into that welfare logging in future shows. But for now, folks, we are pretty much out of here. But remember, listen to your mother. This is Dio saying adios. And I'm Glenn Ayers. Stay active, folks. I am Mother Earth, and I approve of this message. <laughs>